My name is Maggie Freeling. I'm a journalist and producer, and this is Unjust and Unsolved, a podcast about people who I believe are wrongfully incarcerated for crimes that are actually unsolved. You've surely heard stories like these on the news, but the thing is, the ones you've heard about barely scratch the surface. The Innocence Project gives a conservative estimate that about 20,000 innocent people are currently locked away in U.S. prisons. After reading some of these stories, I felt compelled to do something. So I sent 20 letters to people who are locked up despite evidence pointing away from them. Some responded through mail, some emailed, and some called me on contraband cell phones. But all wanted their stories to be heard. So I left my public radio job and decided to do just that. In each episode, I speak with those people, their loved ones, supporters, and lawyers, to shed light on how they wound up incarcerated for decades, despite the evidence, and how that means the crimes they were convicted of are still unsolved. This week, I'm telling the story of Darrell Ewing. On December 29th, 2009, Two cars pulled up to a Detroit intersection. A shooting occurred and one man was left dead. Out gunfire erupts and a barrage of bullets fly in a neighborhood on Detroit's east side. Police and prosecutors described the shooting as gang-related. And when they started, they were promoting events at nightclubs, but they eventually started dealing drugs like Oxycontin and marijuana. Darrell Ewing and Dorico Searcy were convicted of the murder of J.B. Watson. However, Darrell had a solid alibi, and furthermore, a different man has repeatedly come forward under oath to confess, saying he is the real killer of J.B. Watson. Uh, well, I know everything about it. I was, I was there, and I actually was the shooter of that incident, sir. And two judges have ordered new trials because a juror also came forward with disturbing allegations from the jury room. So why has Darrell been in prison for over a decade for a crime he did not commit? We'll get to that after this. One of the things that stood out to me about Darrell's case is how it fits into a documented pattern of systemic corruption in Detroit, which we'll get to later, but also how many people there are compelled to publicly support him. One of the first things he wrote to me was, quote, you can even get two or three celebrities I'm connected with on the podcast. I just got off the line with 42 Doug, who signed to Yo Gotti and got a song on the top of the billboard with Lil Baby. Forgive me, I'm not, you know, into in the rap world as much. I when I googled him, he's very famous. Yeah, he he he, he he's taking off. Yeah. He's one of the newest hottest rappers out there. Forty Two Doug actually raps about Darrell in a few of his songs. He calls him by his nickname, Apple or App. Well, my nickname is Apple or App. Because I uh, had a big head. Wait, so you have a, a big head physically, or like because you were so smart, your head was big? Uh, I would say it's both, but I have a big head physically and so smart. <laughs> <laughs> you can hear 42 Doug in this one called It Gets Deeper, saying free app. Free my nigga app, we should have been home. Won't hit the road with nothing, they got fin on it. Long 
gon' sleep caddy with the tent on it. Took her to the set, blew a tent on her. That's your bitch with doggy bone, I've been on it. Get deeper. Remember late night. The video has 2.5 million views on YouTube. He has this new album coming out called Free Them Boys, um, which obviously I'm assuming has to do with freeing, you know, people like you. Is that correct? Yeah, that's definitely what he's on. It talks about the fight against the system we have been putting up against and the wrongful conditions that uh, we have been plagued with. Freedom boys, we got bows in. Bitch, if he ain't with me, now he told then. Snitch, the How did you get involved in. with 42 Doug? Well, uh, 42 Doug, I grew up with 42 Doug. He, he's from my same neighborhood. Was he part of the Hustle Boys or anything? Yeah, Doug was definitely a part of the Hustle Boys. Hustle Boys is Darrell's crew, which plays a huge part in the case. We'll get to that later. I mean, did you ever think about wrongful convictions? Is that anything you ever thought of before this happened to you? No, this is nothing I never thought of. I actually thought it was something just seen on TV, you know what I mean? Darrell Ewing was born in Detroit, Michigan, November 18th, 1988. He's the second child and only boy of four kids. His mom, Lasagna Dodson, was a single parent working for Comcast, doing sales and marketing. Lasagna told me growing up, Darrell was, and still is, an incredibly smart person. He was very smart. I mean, all the way through school, he I, he was going to East Catholic. Uh, it was time that a teacher told me that they didn't think they was challenging enough for him. That's Detroit East Catholic High School, a private college preparatory school on the city's east side. Until a few years before it closed in 2005, the school was known for a tough curriculum and great sports program. She also said Darrell had a strong work ethic. He did. Started off cutting grass. I mean, it was times that I was headed to work and he would fill my car up and have me a little corned beef sandwich for lunch uh, for cutting grass and things like that. You know, my son, he never was a kid that I would think that would be even in this situation at all. Darrell says he worked many jobs through high school, including construction and selling dinners door to door. He graduated high school with a 3.8 GPA and was accepted to go to Wayne State University in Michigan for business. However, that's not where Darrell ended up. Uh, dancing with the devil or tiptoeing and uh, with the streets and school, I actually got sidetracked. A natural go-getter and business-minded person, Darrell thought going to college at the moment would get him into a lot of debt and even had questions about the use of a degree. So instead, he continued to work. He started a party promotion company called the Hustle Boys. Describe the parties. I mean, like, what was that like? So we're talking like 2007-ish? Uh, you go back to 2004, 2005 when we first started. <laughs> I mean, my first party was called No Bet You Can't Do It Like Me, which actually was after me seeing guys throwing parties saying, oh, man, I know I can do that. I can rock the house out. And so you would make the money from, like, entrance fees? From the entrance fee. Yeah, we were making great money. And when I was generating a lot of cash on the spot from those type of things, some nice nice 20000 from a, uh, a event. Oh, wow. Definitely a hustler. <laughs> Definitely a hustler. <laughs> <laughs> And Darrell says, from this line of work, he got to hanging around a rough crew of people. Well, when you throw parties, you have to be in the street. You have to have a street team that goes out and actually uh, promotes it and everything to that extent. So 
uh, yeah, I, I, I tells myself as being a part of the street because I, I the street guys and the neighborhood guys are the ones who flock into my event. Do you think about, you know, if you had not done this, you know, party promotion, and if you had gone to college, do you think you'd be where you are? No, I wouldn't be in prison. No, no, no. Because I have some friends who have went on to go to college and go play basketball overseas and all type of stuff. And they haven't even seen anything close to a jail cell. And yet, my path took me a different way. Four days after Christmas in 2009, two cars pulled up to a Detroit intersection, Van Dyke and Harper, on the east side. In a red van was J.B. Watson and his girlfriend, Loretta Thomas, driving. In the back, two of Watson's cousins. In the other vehicle a blue-green Oldsmobile, were two black men. One of the men got out of the Oldsmobile when stopped and fired multiple shots at the van, killing J.B. Watson and injuring his cousin. After the shooting, a witness came forward, Raymond Love, who was at the intersection in his car with his wife at the time of the shooting. Although the incident was only a few seconds and Love had ducked down towards his wife, Love identified Dorico Searcy as the driver of the Oldsmobile. He said he could see him through the rearview mirror. Dorico Searcy was arrested two days later while in an unrelated vehicle with a friend. When the police searched that car, three empty shell casings were also found in the windshield wiper well of that vehicle. Analysis of those casings indicated that they were fired from the same gun as the casings found at the scene. But a quick word about ballistic testings in Detroit. Yeah, the crime lab closed in 2008 after it was revealed that they were falsifying evidence and their tech lab wasn't up to code. It was just, it just insane. City officials shut it down in 2008 after an audit found serious errors in the evidence used to put some people behind bars. Auditors found a 10% error rate, which in context, the lab handled about 1,800 shooting cases a year, which could mean that if a 10% error rate is accurate, some 180 people might have been tried using bad ballistics and wrongfully convicted in Detroit alone in one year. Now, this was the year before Watson's shooting, so the ballistics in that case would have been shipped to the Michigan State Police Crime Lab, which has a much better reputation. But those errors in Detroit weren't just about someone eyeballing lands and grooves wrong. They were also about cops straight up planting and fabricating evidence. A man named Desmond Ricks was released in 2017 after 25 years in prison after it was revealed that officers planted evidence to make it look like bullets found in a victim's body came from a gun at Ricks' mother's house. His conviction based on ballistics evidence that pointed to him as the killer. Perry Mason couldn't have won that. Point being, it's not a bad idea to give Detroit cases based on ballistics a second look. In this case, a murder weapon has never been found. And it's worth noting, too, that corruption in Detroit's narcotics unit was so rampant that the police chief last year had his own department's drug unit raided by internal affairs. Police officers facing corruption charges. It certainly has been a problem uh, in the department going as far back as the early 70s. Dirty cops shaking down drug dealers. Did cops use false information to get search warrants and convictions? The department now has a special hotline for people to call and report corrupt officers. There's even a list of more than two dozen officers whose misconduct is so flagrant they're not allowed to testify as expert witnesses in cases they investigated anymore. The list 
list released by Wayne County Prosecutor Kim Worthy, according to her office, includes current and former officers that have committed offenses spelled out in the Giglio case for offenses involving theft, dishonesty, fraud, false statement, bias, and bribery. Back to Dorico Cersei. The friend he was stopped with had a cell phone, which police searched. In it, they found a listing under the name Apple with Darrell's sister's cell phone number. And this is how Darrell Ewing got connected. Once Darrell's name came up, the witness was shown a photo lineup. He identified a man in the photo as looking close to the shooter, but he wasn't positive. This photo was of Darrell Ewing. Darrell was picked up and questioned. He took a polygraph, which he passed. And as I mentioned, the police and prosecutors quickly decided the shooting was gang-related. This was the prosecution's whole case. The crew in the van with J.B. Watson was allegedly part of a crew called the Knockout Boys, which was said to have beef with Darrell's crew, the Hustle Boys. The prosecution used the alleged gang connection to bolster their case because the evidence was weak with no murder weapon, and the connection between Cersei and Darrell that day was also weak. Do you know the, the person, your co-defendant, Cersei? Yes, I know uh, Cersei, but he's actually an older guy from my neighborhood. I don't even know how he was even brought up the whole time and time during trial. All the witnesses got on the stand and actually testified that they didn't even know him and that they didn't have, never knew him as being a part of a hustle boy so-called hustle boy. I asked Darrell about the alleged gang connection. Were you involved in gang life at all? Is there any truth to the fact that, yes, you might have been in a gang? Oh, uh, actually, I was never in a gang, never part of a gang. I don't know anything about any colors or flags or any of those things. I was actually just moving out with a group of guys and we were throwing parties and that was basically what it was, you know? They say the hustle boys was the name of the gang, but that was actually the name of the company that we actually through the party name under. Remember, Durrell threw parties, and this was the alleged gang. Most people who hear the word gang envision something specific, usually guys on street corners selling drugs and defending their turf and doing brutal initiations to prove their loyalty. Detroit definitely has had its share of those over the years, the Young Boys Incorporated in the 1980s or the Seven Mile Bloods more recently. But the Hustle Boys weren't quite the same thing. That's not to say, though, that they planned parties and nothing more. Those parties had drugs, mostly prescription pain pills, because that's what was big at the time. And when they started, they were promoting events at nightclubs, but they eventually started dealing drugs like Oxycontin and marijuana. A few years after Durrell's conviction, the feds busted the Hustle Boys and charged nearly a dozen guys, including Durrell, who was already in prison, with drugs and trafficking charges. Durrell pleaded guilty and got 15 years, though that was moot considering he was already serving a life sentence violent Detroit gang has been dealt a major blow. Yeah, they're known as the Hustle Boys, and in just a few hours, they'll go before a judge. 7 Action News reporter Kim Russell is live this morning with more on this. Now, Kim, this is a dangerous group. That's what the FBI says. A Federal court records call the Hustle Boys violent, and all parties do admit that there was some kind of beef going on between some of the Hustle Boys and some of the Knockout Boys. But this is where it matters that the gangs aren't what you usually picture. No one ever testified or even just said that Darrell himself had anything to do with those beefs. He had never been charged with any violent crime before Watson's shooting. Darrell also said he didn't know J.B. Watson and had only met his cousins in passing and did not have any conflict with them. They confirmed this and testified to this at trial. And if you're thinking of Jermaine's case from episode two, I am too. 
just because Darrell ran with some rough people and was busted for drugs does not mean he also deserves to be in prison for something he didn't do. Yeah, when I told you I was tiptoeing and dancing with the devil before, uh, yeah, I sold drugs, but I, and I accepted full responsibility for that. I never, ever killed anyone. Yeah. And that's the whole issue here, you know what I mean? I accepted full responsibility for my actions that I did and was involved in. Darrell also had an alibi. He was at a celebration dinner after a funeral for a family member. His mom and many family members testified to his whereabouts at the time of the shooting. Regardless, Darrell and Searcy went to trial and were tried together by ADA Cam Towns. And besides the alibi and weak gang connection, there was a bombshell that happened at trial. An FBI confidential informant said it was not Dorico Searcy and Darrell Ewing who murdered J.B. Watson, and he knew who did. The CI was doing time in prison for federal carjacking charges. While there, he met Tyree Washington, who told him about a murder that happened at Van Dyke and Harper. Washington said that he was the actual killer and he shot up the van, his target being J.B. Watson. This CI had testified in front of four federal grand juries before and found to be a credible witness. The FBI brought this testimony to Cam Towns, the prosecutor, before trial, and a sworn affidavit by Tyree Washington, who wanted to testify that he was the real shooter. The FBI and Washington were trying to warn her that she was getting it wrong. But according to Tyree Washington's affidavit, her response was she already had who she was looking for and did not need him to testify. However, the CI was allowed to tell his testimony about what Tyree said to him. So to summarize, Darrell Ewing had an alibi, was identified in connection to Searcy only through his sister's cell phone number in Searcy's friend's phone, and the empty shell casings allegedly matching the ones found at the crime scene or found in a vehicle that was not tied to Darrell, and the jury was aware that someone else confessed. During deliberation, the jury was deadlocked. The trial judge, Carol Youngblood, responded by ordering them to continue deliberations until a verdict was decided. We'll get back to this later. Six days later, the jury finally came back with a guilty verdict. On December 13th, 2010, a year after the murder of J.B. Watson, Dorico Searcy was sentenced to second-degree murder 40 years to life. At 21 years old, Darrell Ewing was sentenced to life without parole. I spoke to Darrell's mom, Lasagna, about the flaws in the case, the dismissal of the alibi, Tyree Washington, especially the alleged gang connection. Lasagna believes it was an easy way to close the case quickly, to make the city look good. When they started all of the growth in Detroit, like fixing up and getting investors to come in, it seems like to me that they took and just used like kids to say they're cleaning up the city. You know what I'm saying? Just grabbing mm-hmm. people to arrest. Because this is what this seems like right here. It was at a time that, you know, all investors, all the new stuff was opening up downtown and things like that. So they have to say what we're doing about this or that in order to do it. And, and whenever it seems to be young black men in a, any kind of gang, they could be a dance group, they're considered a gang. I can't even watch the news anymore because I'm tired of the way that the media portrays young black men.
Diane Bukowski is the editor of an independent Detroit newspaper, The Voice of Detroit. And previously to that, I was a print investigative reporter for the Michigan Citizen, a Black-owned newspaper, which is no longer publishing. She's been covering Darrell's case extensively for years, and I used a lot of her reporting for this episode. Diane is a Detroit native. She knows the city's system well. We spoke about Lasagna's allegations about gangs. The basic... Um, narrative in Detroit from the police department and the prosecutor's office has been to uh, say that a lot of crimes are committed by gang members, that um, gangs are rampant in the city, um, that, you know, but in fact, the, the reality of the matter is that there are a lot of times groups of black youth in the city are misconstrued by uh, law enforcement as being gangs. I had a one juvenile lifer case, uh, Charles Lewis. He was convicted of um, killing a white police officer. They said he was a member of a gang. And it turns out after extensive investigation by uh, not only myself, but also finally he got a lawyer that uh, had an investigator go out and find out that there was no such thing as the Kilbourne Killers gang that uh, they had that they had touted was the cause for his killing the police officer. In fact, it's likely he was innocent. While in prison, Darrell actually bumped into Tyree Washington, who is still doing time for a carjacking right after the murder. His maximum release date is 2067. He would be 77 years old. He talked and he cried and he told me that he was sorry that I ended, actually ended up in this situation like this and it took him so long to come forward because he knew that he had destroyed not only my life, but my fa- me and my family lives due to his actions and his crime. You know, he gave me the intricates of all his thought process and everything. And so I guess I'm wondering, you know, why did he come forward? I mean, why why would you cop to a murder when it's like, okay, they already got two guys? I mean, what do you know why? Did he was he friends with you? I mean, did he feel bad? Well, he was a friend of well, he was a friend of mine, and it always aided his conscience that I was actually sitting here in prison for a crime that he committed. Yeah, and it aided so bad at him that he had to come out and actually confess to his actions in this crime. According to Tyree, he studied the teachings of the Nation of Islam, which encourages followers to take responsibility for their actions. In 2017, a private investigator for Durrell's defense, Scott Lewis, interviewed Tyree and got a full recorded statement from him. It's about 10 minutes long, so I cut some clips together of the most important parts. Let me just ask you some questions. Um, We'll get right down to it. I want to ask you about the December 29th, 2009 fatal shooting of J.B. Watson. Are you familiar with that incident? Yes, I am. What do you know about it? Uh, Well, I know everything about it. I was was there, and I actually was the shooter of that incident, sir. Okay. What was was the motivation for you shooting uh, J.B. Watson? A couple days prior to that, him and his uh, friends had just came and shot at us and almost shot a couple of my friends. And it was going back and forth. They came around and I was with my daughter and uh, my daughter's mother and, and through her friends and they came shooting. So it, it, was, it was a lot of that, a lot of shooting. And, and I was just tired of it. 
So was it kind of a revenge for them shooting at you? Yes, sir. Um, are you willing to name the, the per person who was um, involved in this with you? Yes, there, there was a driver of your vehicle, correct? Yes, there was a driver of the vehicle. Will you name that person? Tyree Washington named the driver and another passenger in the vehicle with him. Neither was Dorico Searcy. In 2017, Darrell and Searcy were ordered a new trial. But it wasn't because of Tyree Washington's multiple confessions. It was because a juror came forward about what had happened behind the scenes at deliberation. Kathleen Burns, a white woman, was juror number four. In 2011, she came forward to say that other jurors pressured her into a guilty verdict that she actually did not believe was true. She said the other jurors told her she was too soft and a racist because she thought the photos of Darrell and Tyree Washington looked similar and could see how a witness could confuse them. We'll post these for you to see. She also said that jurors brought up evidence that was not at trial. She said one juror Googled gang codes and figured Tyree was only confessing because he was lower in gang rank than Darrell and he had to take the hit because of, quote, pecking order. She said jurors didn't believe Tyree's confession. And she said that another juror found Darrell's Facebook and there was a photo of him with a gun. So you had the picture with the gun. Was that your gun? Actually, no, it was one of my gun. I was just posing for a picture that day, you know, uh, something that we, when we young and stupid and just doing things and we think it's cool and what's that, what's that we hear rappers rap about, you know what I mean? Totally glick, glock, and all this type of stuff that we do. You know what I mean? We fall within to make it look up, to try to make it look cool. Regardless, this information should never have been brought into court. Jurors are forbidden to look up the case or involved persons. They can only deliberate on evidence provided in court. Burns, the juror, came forward virtually immediately. She was crying during the verdict, and Darrell's team asked her why, and she told them. She signed her sworn affidavit exactly a month afterwards, but it wasn't until six years later for her testimony to be heard by a court. In 2017, a judge struck down the murder conviction and ordered Darrell and Dorico release or a new trial within 90 days based on the juror's testimony and the tainted jury pool. Despite the order, Darrell still sits in prison, fearing for his life due to COVID-19. When I first spoke to Darrell, he had actually just recovered from the illness. How long were you sick for? I was sick for about 33 days. Oh my gosh. And still to this moment, I still got like phlegm to be in my system and my lungs. I'd be trying to go out and run and work out and keep myself agile, but it's just all type of aspects of this COVID thing. COVID in prison is horrible. They don't give you any medical attention. They keep on sending you back. I had a guy, the phone that I'm sitting on very right here, a guy went back named Mike. He went back and forth five times to medical. But yet and still, they kept on denying them and sending them back. Then the last time they sent them back, he came back in with a, uh, what was that thing they sent? A breathing machine. They sent them back in with a breathing machine the last time. And then right after that, he left out of here and then he died. 
Darrell is at Lakeland Correctional Facility in Coldwater, Michigan. Hundreds of prisoners at Lakeland Prison in Coldwater have now tested positive for the virus. As of the last reporting, more than half of the prisoners who were tested, that's 813 people, had COVID and 23 had died. Again in 2019, a judge ordered a new trial for Darrell and Searcy. But the Wayne County prosecutor, Kim Worthy, has fought for years to keep Darrell in prison despite the rulings by multiple judges, confession of Tyree Washington, multiple letters to her from Tyree Washington, and the fact that William Rice, one of the investigators in Darrell's case, went to prison for perjury and corruption charges. Publicly, Worthy talks a lot about the need to re-examine cases. Her office even launched a conviction integrity unit in 2018. As a prosecutor's office, you cannot be afraid to look at the work you've done as an office. Even if it's way before, even if it's a predecessor's predecessor, I still think we should take a look. Yet, even though two judges ordered new trials in Ewing's case, it hasn't happened because she keeps appealing despite the evidence. I contacted Worthy's office asking why she continues to appeal Durrell's new trial. In an email statement, her spokesperson responded that the office is appealing because the issue isn't Durrell's actual innocence. It's whether jury misconduct occurred. She wrote, quote, It is important that all claims of actual innocence here have already been rejected by the jury and state appellate courts. The only issue is whether juror misconduct occurred that denied the defendants a fair trial. In simple terms, the office is arguing that what the jurors did is not enough to warrant a new trial. Whatever Worthy's reasoning, Darrell says it's bogus. She has known from day one the federal authorities alerted her office that a mistake was being made, but yet still here I sit. Darrell's family has suffered immensely due to his conviction. His mom, Lasagna Dodson, used up her 401k and sold her house to pay for Darrell's defense. To fight somebody who's wrongfully convicted, it takes a lot. It takes a lot because you're constantly spending, you're constantly putting money on the phone. I just know he didn't do this. And it's, a, it's, it's very sad because it's a dirty game in this whole thing here. It's very dirty. And besides the corruption and system being dirty, Lasagna and I spoke about one of the things that I find the most dirty. You know, like you said, the way the media just portrays young black men, especially, you know, I noticed between you and Darrell, both of you felt like you had to tell me, like, he's a good kid, he's a good kid. You know, like, and that's what to me is just so sad about what's happened in our culture and, and our society is that even if he wasn't a good kid, a wrongful conviction is a wrongful conviction, but people and the way the media and and Trump and whoever have portrayed young black people is just so unfair. And you know what, the reason why I am so overwhelmed and I just, it, it really hit my heart is that during that jury stuff, when this jury just uh, came forward, it ended up being a white woman that spoke up for him. Because we can divide and say black, white, this, that, but it took that white woman. There was black people on that jury. And when they brought them on that stand, they was like, oh, well, they did it, but I didn't do it. So you don't speak up and it's a black man who could be your son, your brother? You go ahead with it? That white woman spoke up. 
Darrell has spent almost exactly 10 years in prison despite multiple orders for release or a new trial. This did take a lot away from him. 10 years of your life at 20 years old is a lot of years. I mean, that's time, that's your good years. These are times that you mold yourself into somebody. And I just thank the Lord for keeping his mind. So when you get out, what do you plan to do? Criminal justice reform and wrong conviction, conviction advocacy and try to do like a youth determinant to, to actually tell my story for these guys who are out there in the streets going down a path that most guys go to just ends up in a lose-lose situation. Which I'm going to be an advocate of I'm getting up out of here for criminal justice reform and wrongful conviction advocacy. Since I've been locked up, I have new 20 guys out of, out of my county alone, Wayne County, who has got exonerated and... 13 of those guys I have been uh, actually walked the yards with, and we talked daily about how we was going to get up out of here and what we were going to do. Darrell actually wrote a book about this called The Real Suffer the Most and plans to publish it when he gets out. But I believe I'm joining in the course now for that. That's what my whole part, fashion and purpose is now. I'm just ready to, to get home, you know what I mean? I'm ready to receive justice, to be clear. I just want to go on and live my life and... And because it's such a, a great appreciation for life now, the small things I appreciate now. I'm just ready to get out with my family and live. Have you thought about when you get out, you know, what like the first food you're going to eat is? <laughs> I actually just want to get out and get a whole bunch of fruit because I'm big on working out right now. <laughs> so I want a whole bunch of fruits and vegetables. But my first food probably is going to be some baked chicken or something. Baked chicken, not fried? No, baked, baked, baked chicken. <laughs> oh, man, I, <laughs> I would have baked <laughs> chicken. Just last week, on October 13th, both sides presented oral arguments in front of a three-judge panel concerning the juror misconduct and if Durrell should once again be granted another trial. We're waiting on a verdict any day. If you want to help Darrell, please go to actualinnocentprisoners.com slash Darrell Ewing. There you can find links to write Darrell and message him on Facebook. Also, please write Prosecutor Kim Worthy to free Darrell Ewing. You can also find links to all of this on our website, unjustandunsolved.com. If you want to support the work I'm doing, please, please rate and review and share this show. It takes two seconds and the payoff is huge. The more people who hear and share, the more reviews, the more attention, and the more likely word about these wrongful convictions will reach the right people. Unjust and Unsolved is produced and reported by me, Maggie Freeling, with editorial consulting from Amber Hunt. For more information and resources, go to unjustandunsolved.com. You can find Unjust and Unsolved on Twitter and Instagram at Unjust Unsolved and join the discussion on Facebook at Unjust and Unsolved Podcast Discussion Group. Unjust and Unsolved is a production of the Obsessed Network. You can find all their shows at obsessednetwork.com. Dot com.